Book Three, Chapter Two, of the Mermaid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mermaid, by Lily Dougal, Book Three, Chapter Two. Once more the vision. When Caius turned up the farm road, which was entirely sheltered between gentle slopes, the bright March sun felt almost hot upon his cheek. The snow-road under his horse's hoofs was full of moisture, and the snowy slopes glistened with a coating of wet. He felt for the first time that the spring of the year had come. He was not quite certain where lay the cottage of which he was in quest, and by turning up a wrong path he came to the back of its hen-houses. At first he only saw the blank wall of a cowshed and two wooden structures like old-fashioned dovecotes, connected by a high fence in which there was no gate. Up to this fence he rode to look over it, hoping to speak to the people he heard within. But it was too high for him to see over. Passing on, he brought his head level with a small window that was let into the wall of one of the hen-houses. The window had glass in it which was not at all clean, but a fragment of it was broken and through this Caius looked, intending to see if there was any gate into the yard which he could reach from the path he was on. Through the small room of deserted hen-roosts, through the door which was wide open on the other side, he saw the sunny space of the yard beyond. All the fowls were gathered in an open place that had been shoveled between heaps of hard-packed snow. There were the bright tufts of cocks-tails, and the glossy backs of hens brown and yellow. There were white ducks, and ducks that were green and black, and great gray geese of slender make that were evidently descended from the wild goose of the region. On the snow-heaps pigeons were standing, flitting and constantly alighting, with all the soft dove-colors in their dress. In front of the large feathered party was a young woman, who stood, basin in hand, scattering corn, now on one side, now on another, with fitful caprice. She made game of the work of feeding them, coquettishly pretending to throw the boon where she did not throw it, laughing the while and talking to the birds, as if she and they led the same life and talked the same language. Caius could not hear what she said, but he felt assured that the birds could understand. For some few minutes Caius looked at this scene. He did not know how long he looked. His heart within him was face to face with a pain that was quite new in his life and was so great that he could not at first understand it, but only felt that in comparison all smaller issues of life faded and became as nothing. Beyond the youthful figure of the corn-giver Caius saw another woman. It was the wife of O'Shea, and in a moment her steadfast, quiet face looked up into his, and he knew that she saw him and did not tell of his presence. But, as her eyes looked long and mutely into his, it seemed to him that this silent woman understood something of the pain he felt. Then, very quietly, he turned his horse and rode back by the path that he had come. The woman he had seen was the wife of the sea-captain Lemaitre. He said it to himself as if to be assured that the self within him had not in some way died, but could still speak and understand. He knew that he had seen the wife of this man, because the old cloak and hood, which he knew so well, had only been cast off and were still hanging to the skirts below the girlish waist. And the white cap, too, had been thrown aside upon the snow, he had seen it. As for the girl herself, 
He had loved her so long that it seemed strange to him that he had never known until now how much he loved her. Her face had been his one thought, his one standard of womanly beauty, for so many years that he was amazed to find that he had never known before how beautiful she was. A moment since, and he had seen the March sunshine upon all the light soft rings of curling hair that covered her head, and he had seen her laughter, and the oval turn of the dimpled chin, and within the face he had seen what he knew now he had always seen, but never before so clearly, the soul that was strong to suffer as well as strong to enjoy. By the narrow farm-path which his horse was treading, Caius came to the road he had left, and turning homeward, could not help coming in front of the little cottage, whose back wall he had so lately visited. He had no thought but of passing as quickly as might be, but he saw O'Shea's wife standing before the door, looking for him with her quiet, eager eyes. She came out a few steps, and Caius, hardly stopping, stooped his head to hear what she had to say. "'I won't tell her,' said the woman. Then she pleaded. "'Let her be, poor thing. Let her be happy while she can.' She had slipped back into the house. Caius had gone on, and then he knew that he had this new word to puzzle over, for why should he be supposed to molest the happy hours of the woman he loved, and what could be the sorrow that dogged her life if her happy hours were supposed to be rare and precious? O'Shea's wife he had observed before this to be a faithful and trusted friend of her mistress. No doubt she spoke then with the authority of knowledge and love. Caius went home, and put away his horse, and entered his small house. Everything was changed to him. A knowledge that he had vaguely dreaded had come, but with a grief that he had never dreamed of, for he had fancied that if it should turn out that his lady-love and Madame Le Maitre were one, his would only be the disappointment of having loved a shadow, a character of his own creating, and that the woman herself he would not love. But now that was not what had befallen him. All the place was deserted. Not a house had shown a sign of life as he passed. All the world had gone after the seals. This, no doubt, was the reason why the two women, who had not cared for the hunting, had taken that day for a holiday. Caius stood at his window and looked out on the sea of ice for a little while. He was alone in the whole locality, but he would not be less alone when the people returned. They had their interests, their hopes, and fears. He had nothing in common with any of them. He was alone with his pain, and his pain was just this, that he was alone. Then he looked out further and further into the world from which he had come, into the world to which he must go back, and there also he saw himself to be alone. He could not endure the thought of sharing the motions of his heart and brain with any one but the one woman from whom he was totally separated. Time might make a difference. He was forced to remember that it is commonly said that time and absence abate all such attachments. He did not judge that time would make much difference to him, but in this he might be mistaken. A man who has depth in him seldom broods over real trouble, not at first at least. By this test may often be known the real from the fanciful woe. Caius knew, or his instincts knew, that his only chance of breasting the current was not to think of its strength, but to keep on swimming. He took his horse's bits, and the harness that had been given him for his little sleigh, cleaning and burnishing everything with the utmost care, and at the same time with dispatch. 
He had some chemical work that had been lying aside for weeks waiting to be done, and this afternoon he did it. He had it on his mind to utilize some of his leisure by writing long letters that he might post when it was possible for him to go home. Tonight he wrote two of them. While he was writing he heard the people coming in twos and threes along the road, back to their houses, for the night. He supposed that O'Shea had got home with the girls he had been escorting, and that his wife had come home, and that Madame Le Maître had come back to her house and taken up again her regular routine of life. End of Book 3 Chapter 2 Recording by Bill Borst